Now, last week, Emily talked to us about the subject of change. And I was watching from my place up in Holland, and uh, as I did, I was struck by a transition she made when she said that change is not only uh, normal, it's also good, that God is often behind change. And while Lori and I were watching this, I grabbed the Bible and opened it and said, "Hun, look at this. In Psalm 102, speaking of his creation, Jesus, or uh, the psalmist and God says, they will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like clothing, you will change them, and they will be discarded, but you remain the same, and your years will never end. And I made a note to myself Sometimes we confuse God with his clothing. God is active and present in some system or in some leader or some movement that is highly relevant today, but because God is eternal, he is always moving, moving forward. And as he moves, he will discard systems and leaders and whole things, ideas, while he moves on. And the tendency of mortals, because we are trapped in time, is to rally around the clothing and fail to follow the unchanging God. This is our tendency. So I heard her talk about the changes that were happening to us as a culture and how we have very little control over that and how this is a good thing. What are some of the changes? There's changes in the culture, the rise of technology, the loss of close social human contact. Um, there is change in economics. The disparity of wealth is moving toward the top and away from the bottom. There is change in international situations and relationships as nation fights against nation and refugees are forced to leave their country. The change, I think, that is most pertinent today is the increasing number of people in our country who have little or no religious affiliation, nor any desire for it. It's not as if they have thought about Christianity and uh, uh, abandoned it. It's as if they've never thought about Christianity. They're operating in almost every one of our realms in politics, in education, in economics, in business, and in entertainment with very little thought of a transcendent being, least of all, of God himself. So as this happens, I've tried to say in the past, I believe that the church will be more and more moved to the margins. I won't go over that again or you'll send the same emails. Now, the reason that this is happening is probably complex, but I can think of two primary reasons. 
why the church is losing social capital in society today. One is that we have failed to convert even our own. Even our members professing the name of Christ do not live, most of them, according to the way of Christ. Even though Jesus said, love your enemies and hate your money, they love their money and hate their enemies. He said, keep your vows and break your grudges, but they're keeping their grudges and breaking their vows. And society is looking at this and deciding that the difference between the religious and the non-religious is not that significant. Second is the church's failure to engage the public in the social issues of their day. They quarantine, we quarantine ourselves and talk about religious themes, but too often do not meet the public on their turf with the claims of the gospel. Now, these two things are cyclical. So we have people in our churches who are being fully transformed, but they're often not the ones who are engaging on social issues. And we have Christians who are engaging on social issues, but <laughs> when you start following their posts, it's pretty clear they're not the most transformed. And so we look to society to be either a group of transformed people who are irrelevant or a group of active people who are not transformed. And the church appears either irrelevant or too political. Okay, Chuck agrees. The rest of you are thinking. I believe uh, that this is exactly the situation where Jesus relocated the church. In Mark chapter 3, Jesus is gaining momentum. At the beginning of Mark chapter 3, he heals a man with a withered hand. And while he is becoming more popular to the masses, the power structures are trying to push him to the margins. They're trying to protect the power of the culture, which is the temple. Everybody moves to the temple, and the temple defines the social cultural norms in that day. And the power establishment is protecting the temple from the influence of Jesus' gospel. So in Mark chapter 3, Jesus retreats from the cities and goes out into the countries. And masses of people start to follow him. 
And then he calls his disciples to him. We'll put the verse on the screen. He called those he wanted and they came to him and he appointed 12 of them to be with him and to be sent out to proclaim the message with authority to cast out demons. Jesus is relocating the power and the message of the temple out of the temple and into the community. If you look at it again, I've tried to highlight, can hardly tell it. There are two movements in this passage. One is the movement to be with him. He called those he wanted and they came to him to be with him. And the second is the movement to be sent out. So one of them is a gathering and the other one is ascending. Now, the gathering is more than just a social club. Remember, when they gather, they are gathering around the rabbi for the purpose of becoming like him. That's transformation. But while that is happening, he is sending them out into the different parts of the community where they will carry what is happening in them to the places that are outside of them. You tracking? Because you're not moving right now. I'm trying to read you. Look like you're thinking. Now, these two things, the gathering and the sending, are not destinations, they're cycles. We gather in order to be sent, and we are sent in order to regather, which means we're only gonna be sent, and then later we will gather. You still tracking? Now, the problem is that we sometimes separate these things so that when we gather, we are thinking only about the gathering and not the sending. And when we are sent, we almost never remember that we gathered. So when we are in church with him, we forget that what's happening here is only to be sent out. And when we are sent out into our workplaces tomorrow, we forget that those places are to be influenced by what we do here. So if we bring these together, we will always think about the sending when we gather, and we will think about the gathering when we are sent. That means when people come to church, they will be thinking about how what is happening here is gonna translate into my workplace tomorrow. How am I gonna do this? What he's saying, this pageant that the church just put on in worship, these, these are the days of Elijah. I mean, how am I gonna do that when I go to class tomorrow? And then when we go to class tomorrow, we are to be thinking about what claim does the gospel make on this domain? I get a call um, from 
a business leader in our community. He owns a business, does not attend here. He says, I know you're studying organizational culture. Would you come and talk to me about the culture of my business? I drop in his office, and in maybe five minutes, he outlines some of the tensions that he's facing in the business. And he said, what do you think the problem is? I said, well, I mean, you tell me. And I outlined five different types of organizational culture, and he grabbed one and said, that's the one. We're toxic. We're toxic work environment. He said, and what I want to know from you, preacher, is why we are a toxic work environment when all 30 of my employees are professing Christians and active in their churches. Can you explain to me how you can take 30 individuals who are being changed like Jesus, but somehow when they get together, there is a collective force that is greater than any of them, and that one's toxic. Well, that was the next 90 minutes. If you teach at IWU in the business, I was fixing to call you from that office. I'm like, dude, I don't have an answer, but I sure do appreciate the problem. And I think in broad terms, the problem is that when those Christians are sent, they forgot the gathering. And when they gather, they forgot the job. Somehow, there was no connection between the gospel on Sunday and the claims of that gospel in the business world on Monday. Something got dropped. I think we live in these times right now where the culture is noticing the dissonance between what we say and how we practice it in the heat of the moment. And so I've asked the board to help me change the direction of this church. I think in the past we've talked so much about the gathering. We spend hours getting ready for the gathering. We wanna put the very best thing in front of you because we believe that when you see it put out right, you say, that's the way it's supposed to be. And then assume that that's what's gonna happen when we leave. And I'm asking the board to help me reverse the direction of this so that we are no longer just going into the community and bringing them into the church to disciple them, but we are actually converting members in the church 
and then sending them into the community. That is getting members in our church to be thoroughly indoctrinated with the values, assumptions, habits, and instincts of Jesus, and then releasing them into hundreds of fields and domains throughout the week to practice those claims there. That's a different direction. One is about pulling them in and the other is about sending them out. One talks about how many are coming and the other one talks about how many aren't coming because they're out there and they're making disciples on their own. Now this is not a shift that churches can make alone. This shift from gathering to sending. This is a shift that I think every member in our church has got to make. But I also realize that every one of us in the room right now cannot make the same shift because we're at different points in the trajectory. You with me? So let me outline a few shifts starting with the first one and moving to the hardest one. And let me say right from the front, you cannot make any shift you want. You can only make one and that the one directly in front of you. Okay, you can't say, well, I'm attracted to that one if you need to make the first one now. The first is a shift from believing Jesus to pursuing Jesus. What I'm asking for is that more of our people take responsibility for their own spiritual life. When a person believes in Jesus, they gather for worship, they believe the doctrines, they come when the doors are open. They serve when they get elected. They give extra money when the church is in a pinch. But all of the triggers for their growth are extrinsic. The church is putting something on and they're availing themselves of the opportunity to use that service. And so for them... Spiritual growth is more like a natural, organic thing. You can't hurry it. You just have to keep it in the right environment. And if you keep it there long enough, that environment will soak into that Christian and they will gradually bend. But when a person starts to pursue Jesus, they take responsibility for their own spiritual growth. Spirituality is less like growing a tree and more like a fitness program. It's supposed to hurt. You're not supposed to like it all. It's supposed to feel unnatural. If you believe in Jesus, you say, I can't do stuff that's not natural because it's hypocrisy. But when you're pursuing Jesus, you say, oh, of course it doesn't feel right. I've had 30 years in another brain. I need a new mind. And I can't have it unless I start practices that will bend my mind. That's a fitness program. 
I expect to complain about this. And so we move from simply being fed to being self-feeders. And we declare that our sole purpose in life is to be like Jesus. Come on. We don't hope it happens. We go after it. So we start initiating things on our own that the church is not doing because that's what it takes for us to grow. If you went to a gym, take the Y, take some gym. You say, I want to get in shape. And you show up and the dude just goes, it's all there. Help yourself. I mean, what kind of a gym is that? I would look then like I look now. But if I go to a gym, the dude looks at me and says, oh man, I don't want to crush you, but dude... And he walks me around and introduces me to the specific things that are tailored for my spiritual growth. He doesn't simply say, we have a bunch of services, just come to the gym and hang around the apparatus. He says, dude, you need this and this and this. Now get on it. That's pursuit. Uh, so I'm preaching in a different state. About a year ago, finished the message, man walks up. I'm sitting in the front after three services, back to back to back. What kind of church would do a dumb thing like that? <laughs> and this dude, he walks up, and I'm sitting there out of gas, and a guy walks up and he goes, yeah, thanks for the message, I have a question. And while he's talking right here, there are two girls standing about right here, and then there is a grown-up girl, a young lady, uh, who is back here with a boy. And he says, I have been a Christian my whole life. And uh, preacher, I'm losing my family. My kids, it's like they have a different value system. No, really. He said, I'm afraid that they're not going to stay in the church and I'm going to lose them to the world. He said, tell me about yourself. He said, I'm, you know, 50, 55 years old. And he says, I've been a successful business in my, my whole life. He said, ever since I was young, I've had the ability to make money, lots of it. So I find myself super successful and kind of rich and getting richer, but I'm losing my kids. What do you think I need to do? I said, I've never given this advice before. I said, sir, I think you should sell all you have and give to the poor. He said, why? I said, because I think your kids are waiting for your religion to cost you something, and so far it hasn't. You have to go from just sitting in services and believing the right stuff to actually practicing things you believe at great risk and cost. And so while I would not give this advice to everyone, you might be at a crossroads. Sir, I don't want any of your money. 
I know, I know, I know. The finance and stewardship right now is like, oh, no, you dummy. <laughs> he proceeds to tell me that the one that's down here is um, not his wife, but his girlfriend. He left his wife. And I'm lining these things up and I'm saying, dude, it's just not computing with the next generation. You got to practice what you believe or they're gone. And with all due respect, they should be gone because the claims of Jesus are radical. The pursuit of Jesus is taking at risk radical claims and saying, how do I use that claim, apply that claim to this difficult part of my life? If forgiving my enemies was easy, we'd all do it, but it ain't. And so it's gonna take unnatural hard work, move on. Some of us need to shift from believing in Jesus to pursuing Jesus. Others of us need to shift from pursuing Jesus to reproducing Jesus. And here, we need to take responsibility for someone else's spiritual life. There will come a time in your life, I promise you, having followed Jesus for a while, you will hear him say, you can go no further until you take somebody with you. So you will face a decision to either stay where you are or start to practice awkwardly what it is to reproduce yourself in somebody else's life. There are a number of people in our church right now who are in discipleship groups, but they are afraid to take this step. Are you still listening? Because they're finding such wonderful community with a handful of others in the pursuit of Jesus they don't really trust themselves or really have a great desire to break out of that community and start another one of their own. You can go no further until you take somebody with you. Discipleship is like parenting. You, you don't wait to be a great parent, to have children. Indeed, you can't be a parent at all unless you have children. So you just have to come to grips with the fact that, honey, we're going to have kids and we're going to stink at this. We're not going to know what we're doing. And we're going to have to watch other people and make a bunch of mistakes. But if we want to be parents, we got to have kids. You can't be a parent first until you have kids. You can't be a disciple until you are making disciples. So you can't get it all together and then decide, okay, now we're ready to be a dude. The train has moved on. You just got to say, dude, we're not going to be good at this. I'm not going to know what I'm doing. I don't know where to start, what to say. I don't have a thing. But I'm willing to take two or three people with me on the journey. Still there? 
What I noticed in these people is a few things. I could call them on any given day and they could tell me the people by name that they are meeting with. They don't just say, oh, it's the people at work. They give me names and it's generally between three and 12. And second, they can tell me what they are trying to teach. There's not one curriculum but there is one personality, Jesus. And every one of them can say, whenever I'm with these people, this is the stuff we're talking about. And they can all tell me when and how they're doing this. So when I talk to someone who is in the reproducing stage, they never just say, well, Steve, I hope my life is an influence. I hope someday I will live a Christian life and people will notice the difference and then they'll come to me and say, why are you different? Okay, watch my head. That ain't gonna happen enough. America has changed. They will come to you and say, how nice for you. So there has to be an intentionality of taking a few other people with me, move on. Some will need to shift from reproducing to leading. You will have to make discipleship the main thing you do. Right now, Discipleship is something you hope happens. You have a job. You teach a class. You run a business. And you think, well, I hope that people are being discipled in the process. But there are some in our church who have said, discipleship is the reason I have a job. What if discipleship is not a means to an end? What if it is the end? So when you would say, well, if I can make disciples, I'd have better employees. You'd flip it and say, the reason I have employees or students at all is to provide a platform for making disciples. Now I have to realign everything that I'm doing and every conversation that I enter into, I now hear it from this perspective. What is it like to be that person? What limitations, past or present, are holding them back? What thing can't they do? What impossible thing can't they believe? And what can I do as a person to get that obstacle out of the way? That, that's a, you understand, that's a different kind of conversation rather than an interruption. Last, and then I'm going to wrap this up. Some of us will have at the end to um, shift from leading to becoming. When I deal with high-level disciple makers, I notice uh, sometimes an aggressiveness um, 
and a focus that is at the same time um, very encouraging and sometimes worrisome. Making disciples is not a quest. It's an aroma. The more mature a disciple becomes, the less intentional they are. It's instinct. They're just in the room. They're not doing anything. You're just with them. That requires more time with him. The better you get at making disciples, the harder it will be to find time to be with him. 